Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. bunch of XR activists occupied the Shell Building, which you'll see here. It's the Shell Building, which you've probably seen on the other side of the river. Uh, they broke a bunch of windows. They did a lot of graffiti. Seven of them were arrested, and their court case was delayed, obviously, due to COVID. They intentionally did more than, than 10,000 pounds worth of damage in order that their case would be heard by a jury. They waited two years before the case came to court. And in the run-up to that trial, um, as it happened by a kind of weird coincidence, my daughter was asked to do social media for the trial. And after she'd met the defendants, she phoned me up and she said, Mom, you've got to meet these people. They are absolutely amazing. And on the grounds that I always do what my daughter tells me to do, I went to Stroud, where most of them come from, and I interviewed two of them. Um, before the trial. I, uh, one of them is the chap you see here in the blue jacket, David Lambert, and I also interviewed Gail Bradbrook, who's one of the founders of XR. Um, they were really fascinating interviews, and I realized, as usual, my daughter's instincts were really smart. In the course of the trial, one of the things that really amazed me, despite the social media that was being done, is that there was no formal media covering the trial at all. In part, this was because media had been kind of eviscerated during COVID. There were very few journalists, very few newspapers that would have had the resources to send somebody into a courtroom for two weeks, which is how long the trial went on for. And the one journalist that was there got thrown out because of contempt of court. So it was very, very poorly covered. And as a consequence, during the, case, during the course of the trial, following the social media and talking to my daughter, I started to write about it because I thought, well, somebody's got to do, to do this. And I looked behind me, and there was nobody there. So that meant it was me. Um, when the verdict came out, it was quite surprising because, as you'll remember from that, you know, this was a very, very heavily filmed and photographed event. There was absolutely no doubt about what had happened. There was no doubt about who had done it. And yet, the jury found the seven defendants not guilty. That was kind of amazing. Now, because there'd been no media in the courtroom at the time, nobody in the media could explain the verdict. So depending on your point of view, some people just said, isn't it a triumph for common sense, not actually knowing what they were talking about? And other perspectives said, well, this just shows you know, that, that the world has gone mad. Um, nobody writing about it actually understood what had happened in Southwark Crown Court over the period of two weeks. And so I kept thinking, well, you know, we've this is a really important story. Somebody should be doing something about it. And yet again, it turned out that that somebody was me. 
And a couple weeks after the things had died down, I was thinking about it. I mean, these people would not leave my mind. And I thought, well, come on, Margaret. Just writing a couple of articles won't do. I wrote particularly for the Financial Times because it has an audience I really want the climate change message to get to. And I thought, well, come on, you've been a radio drama producer. Why don't you do a radio play about it? And you can interview the defendants, and you can dramatize the court transcript. And that could be really interesting. So I pitched that to the BBC, and after you know, quite a lot of nonsense around the houses, they, I think, quite boldly commissioned me to write the play. What I didn't tell them at the time, um, <laughs> but I knew is that actually what's going to be really difficult about this is court transcripts are very, very expensive. Well, those who's a public trial paid for by public money held in public, public justice, if you want a transcript of a trial in the UK, even if it was you that was on trial, you have to pay for it. It costs thousands and thousands of pounds. Fortunately, the BBC decided that this was something that they wanted to break the budget for. So we got the transcript. I wrote the play. The play went out. Uh, it was very, very well received. Everybody, I mean, the, the higher-ups in the BBC thought it was fantastic. They were very proud of it, and the audience response was incredibly positive, I think. It's very underestimated how much support there is, in fact, for XR in this country. So that was great. And then I kept thinking, well, that was one thing, but it doesn't quite capture what needs to be said about this. There is a much bigger audience for this, and there's an awful lot of a two-week trial that doesn't make it into a 44-minute play. So I thought, well, why don't you try writing it as a stage play? So I thought, OK, but if I write it as a stage play, then what? So I reached out to my pals at Bath Spa University, which has a drama department, and I said, so here is the thing. I've got this radio play. I'd like to write a longer version. If I wrote the longer version, could you and your drama department do a public rehearsed reading to see if it actually works? Is it worth virtually two hours of stage time? Because I don't know, and there isn't really any way to find out except to do the damn thing and see if it works or not. Much to my amazement, because with all due respect to Claire, <laughs> universities are usually pretty slow in making decisions. Um, about a week later, I got an email saying, sure, how about the performance on the 14th of June, which meant that I had very quickly to write the darn thing. Anyway, I did. We did the public rehearsed reading, the Bath Spa University, God bless them, threw a lot of money at it. So we had not drama students, but professional actors in all the main parts, and the play sold out, which was kind of interesting because I didn't know, does anybody want to go and see a play about climate change? Sounds kind of miserable, doesn't it? But actually, I learned something, which was the answer was, yes, they really did. I then, um, I 
invited a number of theater producers to come and see it on the grounds that it was an experiment. I'd be really interested in their feedback. And much to my amazement, um, two producers were extremely interested in the play. Subsequent to that, um, I've, we've started developing it. My daughter is now a co-writer with me on the project uh, for Bristol Old Vic in a collaboration with Good Chance Theatre. We still don't know what will happen to this project. That's the nature of the beast. It's, it's changing shape quite a lot. We've changed a lot of its tone. Where it goes, we don't know. What we do know is that everybody who reads it loves it and wants to do something. And I think this feeling of I want to do something is pretty much where activism starts in most people's lives. They don't generally know what they want to do, only that they feel compelled to do something. So, is this play activism or is it art? I think it's both. Why? Well, let's think about it from a couple of different angles. First of all, I would have to say, I don't think all art is activism. I know there's a school of art historians that do believe that. I think they have to bend themselves into, kind of twist themselves into knots to sustain their argument. And I would agree with James Shapiro, the historian of Shakespeare, who says if you search Shakespeare as deeply as you like, nowhere will you find an opinion. And therefore, but nobody would argue that Shakespeare is an art. What is the opinion, what is the political perspective of A Midsummer Night's Dream? I don't know. Shapiro doesn't know. I think you have to go through an awful lot of intellectual contortions to find one. Equally, I know that Whistler's arrangement in black and gray, otherwise known usually as Whistler's mother, I know Whistler absolutely changed art and painting, but I don't think that he did that as a political act. So just because my play is theater um, doesn't necessarily mean that it's activism. Just because it's art doesn't mean it's activism, but so not all <coughs> activism is art. This is a very angry student, or sorry, angry nurse. Um, she definitely has a cause, but just because she has a cause doesn't mean that she's an artist. So art and activism kind of overlap in a sort of Venn diagram but they aren't necessarily or inevitably the same thing. So what I want to talk about today is kind of why the story of the Shell 7 became a play, why I thought it was an important form to adopt, and explore a little bit about my logic or reason behind what, turning what could be seen, and I think heretofore has been seen, as a scientific problem, or a democratic problem, or an ethical problem, into what might be seen as art, or might be seen as entertainment. What's gained when we do that, and what's lost when we do that? And is anything changed? The obvious answer to why a play, I think, is kind of, well, why not? 
<laughs> theater actually has a fantastic, rich, long tradition of being a space in which ideas and arguments and experiences of life can be explored. It is the space in many ways because drama is founded in conflict. It is the heart and foundation of theater, conflict. And that's true whether we're talking about comedy or tragedy. One of the world's earliest plays that survives, that we know about, is a play called Lysistrata, or Lysistrata, depending on how you believe ancient Greek was pronounced. It was written and first performed in 411 BC. It's a comedy by Aristophanes about women attempting to end the Peloponnesian War by denying men all access to sexual favors. So they basically go on strike and refuse to have sex until the men negotiate a peace. It is a fantastic play. It's timeless, it's very funny, it's a tremendous exploration of gender differences, and it's been performed all over the world ever since it's been written. I directed it when I was at university in the 70s, and as you can see, it's still being done today. <clears throat> it's funny, but of course it's also serious. I mean, personally, I think the political strategy here is absolutely brilliant. I don't quite know why we don't use it these days, but anyway, it is an attempt to get under the skin of its audiences. Coming at a tragic issue, the Peloponnesian War, after all, was a real thing, at a tragic issue with humanity and humor, opposition and absurdity. Multiple themes run through this play about war and peace, about men and women, about absurdity and reality, about love and hate. Those multiple themes are one reason it's proved so fantastically adaptable for the last 2,000 years. It can morph and shapeshift according to the times and the context in which it's done. Theater is highly adaptable as an art form to the surroundings in which it occurs, which is one reason why there is such a long, rich historical tradition of political theater. The Trojan women, Mother Courage, Troilus and Cressida, the Marassade, and the musical Oh, What a Lovely War keep returning to the stage because they find new audiences and new meaning every time. It's not just in the news that the new can be found. In many ways, art is the opposite of ruthless pragmatism. Now that doesn't mean that artists aren't pragmatic. They are among the toughest, most practical people I have ever worked with. But art is a way of experiencing and relaying experience in ways that specifically do not address our pragmatic, economic, self-optimizing selves. Artists want to get under your skin. They want to reach other parts of your brain that are open to feeling, tolerant of ambiguity. They're quite hard to find these bits of people sometime, which is why it requires an awful lot of artistry. It operates in the regions of your mind which are at best open, 
or undefended, or at least curious. The reason conflict in drama is so critical is because it draws you in. You start to wonder, who are these people who can't agree? Why don't they agree? What's the issue? Where do I stand? What do I believe? Questions to which there might not be complete or perfect answers, just like life. I remember a couple of years ago going up to Islington to see a production of Ibsen's The Wild Duck. And it's an amazing play. Ibsen is an amazing playwright, another one of these great old writers that keep coming back and back and back because they keep asking us questions we still don't have answers to. And one of the real delights of seeing the play wasn't just the play. It was walking to the tube station afterwards behind a gaggle of people who were just arguing about it all the way to the tube. That's one of the things art can do. It creates a safe space in which to have those arguments with your friends. Now, the climate crisis is often referred to as a war, certainly as a conflict. A war, perhaps, against fossil fuels, against big business, against ignorance, against vested interests between the rich and the poor. It's certainly a topic large enough and critical enough to encompass any number of protagonists and arguments. And yet, as I kept thinking about the Shell 7, the thing that really struck me was, here was the greatest single theme possibly in human existence, and nobody had written a play about it. I mean, there were, to be fair, a couple of plays uh, which were very intellectual, quite convoluted, totally abstract. We've known about climate change for decades, and yet somehow, despite you know, a lot of intellectual debate, there was no good theater on the subject. It struck me that this was just another piece of evidence, if you like, that among its other catastrophes, the climate crisis has been the greatest single failure in human communication in human history. An emergency threatening the lives of all future generations, not just of people, but of species. And the best we can do is metaphor. We've known the science for half a century at least. And while scientists have inspired scientists to do more research, they have absolutely failed to communicate what the climate crisis means to people. Sure, there's been a big fight about words. Is it a climate change? Is it global warming? Is it a climate emergency? That's been a huge distraction. There's been an explosive discharge of verbiage and data and mountains of generally pretty inaccessible, intimidating research. And all of this has, for the most part, fallen on deaf ears. What we have seen, which I think is really food for thought, is how powerful the status quo can be. Relatively recently, until relatively recently, we had, have shown a preference for sticking with a miserable present rather than embrace a future of change. We seem up to our neck in the status quo trap 
preferring the certainty of failure to the ambiguity of change. Now, it's easy and, and it's not entirely wrong to blame the expensive, very sophisticated climate denialism funded and dispersed by fossil fuel companies and their allies. But I think that's also an alibi. The science community, by and large, has just failed to find a language that reaches people. What was comprehensible was has been explained or described in words and pictures so terrifying, so overwhelming, so hopeless, that they've proved paralyzing. It shut most people down. Science had the data, of course, but proved in un incapable of articulating the truth. So what is it about art that's so different? Well, of course, it speaks to our emotions, to our imagination, and to human empathy. But it does two other really fundamental things. Because art doesn't attempt to be perfectly accurate, perfectly comprehensive, perfectly scientific, because in fact, it doesn't aim to be perfect at all. It leaves gaps, empty space where ambiguity resides. Take this poem by W.H. Auden, and I'll just read the first stanza. It's a great poem. I recommend, I think I put in the slides the whole text because it's just a great poem. Where does this journey look which the watcher upon the keys standing under his evil star so bitterly envies as the mountains swim away with slow, calm strokes and the gulls abandon their bow? Does it promise a juster life? Now, what the heck is this about? Right? Who is the watcher? Why is he standing under an evil star? What's he done wrong? Is it him or the place or the times that he lives in? Why does he envy a journey and what's he running away from? And just what kind of vow can a seagull actually make? What could they possibly have to do with a juster life? And what does that have to do with the journey? It's hard to imagine four lines with more ambiguity, which is exactly what draws us in, wondering. And because there are no answers in the poem, because there's no detail, we put ourselves on this boat as it leaves the harbor. We think about our own moments of sadness and regret, our evil stars. And we envy those who are innocent of such feelings. We've all experienced journeys as departures and loss, probably also of adventure. We know what it is to feel lost and lost. And that's how the poem becomes not about W.H. Auden trying to decide whether or not to abandon England at the beginning of the Second World War, but about all of those moments of change in our lives when we havered between knowing we had to change and being able to do so. The ambivalent moment that separates believing from knowing from action. 
leaving so much unsaid and unexplained means that we build the neural networks in our brains that make the poem make sense. And that's when it becomes our experience, not Auden's experience, but our own. And that isn't true just in poetry. Those gaps, that ambiguity, is, of course, why people keep going back to Jackson Pollock over and over and over again, not because he tells you what to think, but because he doesn't. So you have to figure it out for yourself. And as you figure it out for yourself, your experience of yourself changes. Art makes you reach deep down inside yourself, and it makes you think for yourself to discover ideas and feelings you didn't know you had, creating an experience that is embodied in you. It also explains why art often lies dormant for years, apparently overlooked and underrated, because it seems irrelevant. And then suddenly it'll just pop up when it's needed. If you think of Shakespeare's King Lear, it wasn't done for hundreds of years because everybody thought it was too miserable and too bleak until suddenly, after the Second World War, it is the play that explains human existence. It's why Greek tragedy comes and goes, but never quite goes away. It's why suddenly, in the 1990s, the Mahabharata became the thing that everybody wanted to see, to read, and to study. It's why Beowulf and Baldwin come in and out of fashion. Not that the work has changed, but that we have. All of these, and there are many, many more, spring back into being, not because they have somehow been altered, but because what we bring to them has. And we become what Toni Morrison calls co-conspirators with the artist. What we bring changes what we find in their work. On its own, however, I think this highly personalized experience isn't enough. Let's not forget that poetry was originally recited or sung, that its rhymes mattered because not being written down, rhymes and rhythm and tune meant that the poetry could be remembered, repeated, and shared. It is still, to a striking degree, in poetry slams and open, poet and open mic poetry events. Today, nowhere is the link between poetry and song more obvious, of course, than in music. I remember going to the Brooklyn Literary Festival a couple of years ago, where my friend Paul Muldoon, a fantastic poet, was talking about poetry, and somebody in the audience asked him, why do you think there's been no great poetry written about 9-11? Now, I know Paul quite well, and I knew that what he really wanted to say was, mm, well, you know, 9-11 isn't actually the worst thing that's ever happened in the world. Right? But he wasn't going to say that to an American audience. 
So instead, he said something much more subtle and interesting and said, well, I think it has. I think if you listen to Bruce Springsteen's The Rising, that is poetry about 9-11. Poetry started as song. Strange Fruit, of course, started as a poem by Abel Mirapel. It became a song, of course, when sung unforgettably by Billie Holiday. But it started as art, as poetry. Gospel music has always contained elements of protest, articulating suffering, promising hope and redemption. Songs like Wading in the Water were a form of activism, imagining the possibility of escape to freedom and teaching slaves how to hide when they escaped. In jazz, Mrs. Uh, Nina Simone's Mississippi Goddamn refused to let the entertainment part of song disguise what was really going on. This is a show tune, Simone said, but the show hasn't been written for it yet. Hip hop and rap sit squarely in this tradition, from Public Enemies Fight the Power in 1989 to the anthem of Black Lives Matter, Kendrick Lamar's All Right. Was it really, as pundits said, the new black national anthem? It wasn't for pundits to say, it was for the public to choose. The song, this song doesn't offer comfort, as the title might suggest. It offers confidence and defiance. Not that police shootings won't continue to happen, but an absolute determination that in rejecting despair, expressing anger and grief, was a demonstration of the capacity to keep going defiant hope, a refusal to surrender to fear. And by 2020, what came back again? A remix of Fight the Power. All of this is very much more than music. Gospel, jazz, hip hop have always been musical forms that brought people together. A form of communion, imparting solace and strength from each other. What does each word mean to each individual? Something subtly different, sometimes uncomfortable, but unifying in its strength, its emotional truth, and its solidarity. What's newer is bringing the artistry and provocation that art has historically offered to the streets. That crossover has had a lasting impact from the days when playwright Larry Kramer moved his art form, theater, onto the streets of New York when the AIDS pandemic swept America. Of course, Kramer wrote a play about it, The Normal Heart, recently revived here in London, but then he took his stagecraft to street die-ins at institutions that were actively suppressing information about and access to drug trials, a form of street theater, not as entertainment, but enrolling the public in a public tragedy. It was an example conscientiously copied with Kramer's advice and support when the Parkland kids started protesting about school shootings. 
and it deeply informs the, infor the artistry of Extinction Rebellion today. Whether didactic or philosophical, art drives change in us and in the people who make it. It changes what we know, what we feel, and the stories that live inside our heads. And because they take up residence in our minds, they become our stories, our experience, and very, very much more difficult to get rid of than data. Does it work? All art is an experiment. Nobody knows when they start work on a piece of music or a poem or a painting what it will be or what it will mean to others. Kendrick Lamar said that when he started writing All Right, he didn't know what it would mean to other people who heard it. His producer, Pharrell Williams, sensed that, but it was only when the song was out there in the world that it became clear what it meant and why it was so powerful. The co-conspirators, you could say, co-wrote the song. So artists, like activists, take on great risks to themselves whenever they start anything. They don't know where it's going to lead or what the co-conspirators, readers, listeners, viewers, will make of it. That co-conspiracy is deep and a subtle collaboration inside the minds and sometimes out on the streets. It evolves and grows and its impact emerges in our hearts and minds sometimes after decades in attitudes, in legislation, and in the trace elements of our decisions and beliefs. So we've learned a lot from working on the Shell 7 project. One of the first insights about what it is, what it does, came from a woman who'd listened to the radio play who wrote to me and said, you know, I never really liked those protesters and I didn't understand why they did what they did and I think I understand them now. I'm still not sure I agree with them. I'm still thinking about it, but I see them differently. I'm still thinking about it. That's like the greatest thing any writer could ever get in a fan letter, trust me. We got under her skin. Who knows what happens next? Then when we did the rehearsed public reading, and had an audience discussion between the real activists and the audience, we learned something else. I really liked the way that the courtroom speeches were made to us, one man in the audience said, like we were having to decide whether you were guilty or not, like we were the jury, because in a way, we are the jury. I liked that sense too that tonight we are an audience, even if just for one night. Art changes people, the people who consume it and the people who make it. That's why it's dangerous and it's why authoritarian regimes always try to control it. They know how powerful it can be, which also means you better be prepared if you're gonna go into it. One of the very first interviews that I did when I started off on this project 
was, was with Senator Clifford, one of the defendants. It was a really long interview, and it was recorded outside in Stroud on a freezing November morning. He talked about the long journey that had brought him to activism. He talked about a childhood in boarding school when his parents lived in Africa on some kind of post-empire world in which children were just treated as objects to be organized and trained and managed. And then he talked about his failed marriage where after a lot of therapy he realized that that was how he'd thought about women too, as objects to be used and trained and dominated. And how he'd come to see this long, continuous line from the dominance mindset of empire to the mindset of male dominance to the industrialized mindset of people dominating nature. And his growing awareness of how much needed to be undone in him before he could be fully human. A funny, serious, kind man trying towards the end of his life to change it for the sake of his children and billions of people he'll never meet. That changed me. Now I sit in meetings and we're having dinner with friends and I know I'm not the person I used to be. I'm less quick to judge. We are none of us without fault but my sense of what matters has changed completely. What I hear in people's conversations is different, and the ones I want to contribute to sometimes surprise me. I'm really good at change. I've moved countries, I've changed careers three or four times very successfully, but this is the biggest shift I've ever experienced, and it happened in my head. So if you're tempted to ask, as people quite rightly are, if art changes anything, then my answer is yes, it does. Just be careful. It could change you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.